Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com. My guest this week is Amanda Hesser, co-founder and CEO of Food52. During this 50-minute conversation, we talked about the early days of the brand, how they built their commerce business, what some expansion might look like over the years, and her belief that organic growth is the best way to build a media company. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Why don't we start at the very beginning? In 2008, you left the New York Times and embarked on creating Food 52, which launched a year later. What was the initial inspiration for the company, and why did you ultimately decide to launch it? Well, let me answer that by taking a step back, because I left the Times to start a different company, which I spent a year working on. It was not related to food, but it really... I think of it as my startup grad school year where I got to immerse myself in this world and realized that it really, you know, excited me. I I really wanted to start a company and I, but I, I, you know, obviously you need to land on an idea that really has legs. And the first idea that I had uh, was (laughs) an interesting project, but not necessarily a business. And, but I had already kind of caught the bug and I was also, uh, concurrently like working on this book, very long book project with Meryl Stubbs, who I had hired to help, you know, me do research and recipe testing on that project. And we became good friends. We, uh, worked intensely on that. And while we were working on it, we just naturally talked a lot about, you know, what we were seeing happening in the food world and in the industry. Uh, Meryl was also a food writer and, you know, she was a freelance food writer. And at the time I was, you know, I, or up until then I had been working at the times as a, an editor and writer. And so we were really on the front lines of, you know, shifts happening in the industry. And there were really these massive sea changes that had happened over the pre, you know, preceding decade. And we slowly, you know, I, you know, essentially I came to the realization that we, there wasn't a place for people like us, people who loved food, you know, knew, knew something about cooking, um, but really wanted a hub, you know, a place like a world where they could go and really be served in a more comprehensive way instead of having just food sites or magazines or, um, cookbooks to go to, and then stores where you could buy cookware. Everything was very like, fragmented in the, in the food world, but there was this growing kind of unity around it's the interest. And we felt like people just weren't being served well. So that was sort of the underlying, uh, need that we were trying to, uh, address, but we went about it in a very different way. And I don't think that we had all of the, you know, I don't think we had fully understood the potential of the company and, or like how, how we were we were really formulating it until we kind of got going. But what we did to begin was, you know, Hey, can we, we wanted to test out, like, can we create a different kind of company that is much more community driven yet still retains the high quality content, 
and you know curation that you get from more traditional media and strong voice and you know um, sort of visual point of view that you get from uh, traditional media can you bring those two things together and create a better company and so what we did was you know we, you know I knew how to do cookbooks and I also knew how to get a cookbook deal um, uh, publishing deal. So we came up with a proof of concept test, which was, can we create the first crowdsourced cookbook in 52 weeks, thus Food 52? And we would do that by creating this site where you could become a community member and you could contribute and participate in lots of different ways that would have meaning to the end product, which was the the recipes and the content. And so that meant like you could become you know, you could be a cook who, who, um, contributes recipes to the contest. You could test the recipes, you could vote on the recipes, you know, you could comment, you can, you know, you could be part of the conversation. And this was something that, you know, now doesn't sound so crazy, but back then it really wasn't very, uh, common for there to be this kind of interaction between a publishing, uh, company and, you know, a, a media publisher and, and its audience. So we created the site and with this concept, we went out and re- and got a, um, a book contract and it was actually ended up being a two book contract. And it, the contracts themselves were for a hundred thousand dollars each. And usually when you do a book contract, you get like about 50% of the advance up front and then the rest in sort of different increments based on your delivery. And, we convinced them slash they very kindly decided to give us the advance for both books right up front. So that's what funded our company for the first 18 months was $100,000, which we then used to develop our branding, brand identity, the uh, develop the site itself and how it would function, get it launched and, and get this proof of concept going so that we could see that if there was traction there and if that, if our, theory really played, like if it really worked and, uh, we could build, build from there. And so was the plan to just do food 52 until the two books were done? Or did you always know that there was more there to build from? The plan was (laughs) plan slash hope was that there would be more to build from, but we didn't know. And I think I understood from the year I had spent previously in, you know, in, in doing, uh, you know, in this other company that, you know, you often do need to, to just throw some ideas out there. Like you need, a, you know, like a, like a minimum viable product to test so and learn so that you can actually really formulate a, a, a more, um, you know, comprehensive plan. And, you know, I think there are founders who are really good at just selling a grand idea and painting a picture of a, you know, bold and bright and big <laughs> money-making future. Um, Meryl and I were not those kinds of founders. We were much more, um, com- you know, we were the kinds of founders who like to prove out that there's, there is some, some, something sub- substantive to build on. And then sell that. And so knowing that, that's how we approached uh, our, our proof of concept. We felt like if if at the, you know, if we find that there's not something there, and we had an inkling that there would be, uh, 
you know, the, at the very least, we would create two great cookbooks because we know how to do that. We knew how to great create cookbooks. And so that, that was sort of an, um, you know, we didn't want to be just taking some publisher's advance and then <laughs> blowing it on, you know, this wild experiment. We, you know, we did want to produce something of quality and we knew we could do that. But uh, our hope and goal was that we would learn a lot along the way that would help formulate, help us, excuse me, help inform a, a bigger business that we could build. And it, it was, it was very early on that we could see that this, this had, this definitely had legs. Pivoting to the website for a second, there was a bit of a to do on Twitter about a month ago because somebody created a, an app that would basically strip recipes from websites and just put it up with no ads and really very little attribution. Uh, because one of the complaints about these sites is that they are cluttered with people's life stories and far too many ads and just a really messy user experience. But when you look at your recipe pages, that's really not the case. It's very much to the point, very little clutter, obviously some ads, but like, you know, this is a business after all. (laughs) Why do you think you didn't fall for the same trap so many other recipe sites did uh, with just too much life story and clutter? Well, I actually think there's there have been two uh, approaches, and actually, what one of the signals that informed us in the early days that there was there was something around you know to be built around you know pulling community together and creating a platform for for individuals to um, you know, build a following and, and, and share their work was the fact that the, there was an explosion of, of food bloggers in the early two thousands. And that is actually where the, uh, kind of style of recipe writing, where there's a narrative before the recipe was developed. I mean, not that it didn't exist previously, but it really kind of took on a life of its own. And, uh, there were just some amazingly talented cooks, home cooks who were not professional food writers and, you know, until they created their blogs who were, um, you know, gain, gaining a following who were creating amazing content. Um, but who ultimately, you know, were just part of this larger constellation of blogs. And we felt like there was a need to pull these together and kind of, you know, create one place that could synthesize that on the other end of the spectrum at the same time were, a number of startups, uh, sort of recipe startups, where they were trying to do the, the opposite, where they felt like recipe search should really is really a technology play. It's not. It's not about the the narrative or the person who's writing it, or um, uh, you know, it. It's it's really just this utility, and I and we felt all along that they had really gotten it wrong. That they un- they misunderstood the core part of of cooking and food, which is that the emotional connection that people have with it and that sure you can look up, you know, a recipe to like figure out a technique, you know, and you can, there are many, many sources for that, but that the power in, in food is to make a connection, you know, for, for a reader to feel connection to your, your brand or your blog. And that's the, that is what food bloggers had done and had done so well, but we still felt like it was, it was, leaving the, you know, the reader, cook, consumer in this place of having to kind of go all over the map, you know, all over the, all over the internet to like find what they need. They could follow a couple of bloggers, but then they'd have to go elsewhere for maybe more, you know, a, a broader selection of recipes and they'd go elsewhere for their, to, you know, buy cookware and ingredients. And we just, 
again, wanted, we felt like the beauty of technology is actually like harness bringing all of these things together, but do it in a way that is, you know, curated, that's useful, but that also has that emotional connection. And I think that, you know, that understanding of that emotional connection really comes from our experience in more traditional media where, um, you know, people who read the New York times or, you know, uh, or who read, you know, the LA times, like they're, they read it because there's a loyalty that's built up over by, because you, you trust, you trust the publication, you, you, you know, you know, specific writers, you, um, you know, you have a, you feel a connection to, to that particular publication. It means it might be an alignment of values or beliefs. Right. And, we felt like a lot of content on the internet at the time that we were getting started completely missed this. And they, and they treated content just as a, like kind of like a widget that you could like put out in the world and that, that, that people would consume as opposed to understanding that actually like content is so much about identity and and the per and the person who's reading it. Right. And feel, feeling this connection. And so we, we want, we felt like you could have, you could, you could have this, you know, curated experience. You could have something that was very useful, but that also um, built this more longer lasting relationship with your audience. Community has obviously been an integral part of the business since day one. You yeah. were effectively curating great recipes and you had winners of each week's recipe. Uh, there was a great Twitter thread by Adam Kiesling recently about that. How has including the reader in the journey, <clears throat> first with recipes, but then also in identifying new products to create, which we will talk about in a bit, helped Food 52 grow? Sure. Well, in a couple of different ways. So one is that you know our community creates a lot of content for us, and they do that because they're really passionate about this um, topic, and they know a lot, and you know, and we've created a, a, you know, a platform that celebrates that. And so, um, I think, you know, they, they've, they've helped us grow, you know, simply by, you know, creating content that, you know, people can find. And so that's one way. I think another way though, is that, um, is, is that we, you know, one of, one of our, um, approaches to community is that we don't, we've never (laughs) treated our community like they're this, you know, this group that's over here, it's like, we are, we consider our team part of the community too. And like, it's, I think it's a really important shift to, um, understanding like that, that you have to, your team and your company has to really embrace and be a part of the community as well, or otherwise it won't work. And, um, and that, and that community, um, you know, successful communities, like it is, it is an interaction and there is leadership and it's not just this kind of free for all. Right. And so when, you know, I think that one, one of the things that, um, that we've done is a, we, you know, we've given people a lot of different ways to participate and I can go into some of those, those details if you'd like, but just from a sort of um, broader brushstroke, like just giving people ways to participate that are meaningful. Again, it, it, that builds the loyalty, um, and, and the trust. And it's also then helps spread the kind of organic word of mouth. That's, um, that's a really important part. So another, another way, a key way that, 
our community has helped us, us grow is by, because it's such an interactive experience, whether it's like somebody commenting on a recipe or answering one of our quizzes about products is that we're hearing from them all the time. And so we know what they care about. And then we can produce content and or products or and or events, you know, accordingly. So I'll just give you, you know, a couple of examples. Um, you know, years ago, um, we... Uh, we started, you know, covering more specialized diets like vegan cooking, for instance. And, you know, it was getting a good response. We actually produced two cookbooks in one year and one was a dessert cookbook and one was a vegan cooking. And all along, both we and our publisher thought, well, um, you know, the dessert cookbook is going to be like a no brainer. That'll be the success. And the vegan cookbook, you know, we, we have high hopes like vegan, vegan content, you know, performs well. Well, the vegan cookbook like way outperformed the, the dessert, the dessert um, cookbook. And it just was, again, like the signal that we could then use to, we were like, okay, <laughs> our vegan content has been doing really well. And now we have this cookbook, these cookbook sales to, to show us yet another data point. Let's increase that content. And we, you know, we have, and it's done incredibly well. We, you know, we hear from people in the comments around, uh, you know, about their interest in sustainability. And so that, you know, that has driven a lot of um, the, the kinds of content that we've, um, we've created. We, you know, after we launched our shop, we were just expanding our assortment and had a couple of buyers on board who, you know, were interested in home products and we wanted to get into home, but we just felt like we had, we had to experiment. And our, you know, the first dozen or so home products that, you know, outside of the kitchen that we started selling, were selling incredibly well. And it, you know, it, that informed our content team who was like, well, if we're selling, you know, if people trust us to buy home products from us, then we should also be creating more home content. And then, you know, and, and that, so we're just constantly kind of balancing what we're, what we're hearing from people. And at the same time, you know, also like leading them as well with, with, with content we think, well, you know, they should be paying attention to or that they'd be interested in. So it's, it's not a neat process. There's no formula that you can follow. It really is a, ma a matter of everyone on your team, keeping their ear to the ground at all times and, um, you know, and, and just listening. So let's jump into the actual business model of the business of, of Foo 52. And I love talking about your e-commerce business. So I want to start there. It originally started as provisions, uh, your shop. Yes. Uh, and then obviously evolved. But when you first started the provisions, was it an affiliate model and then evolved into managing inventory? Or did you go straight to launching your own managed inventory business? So we are actually in between. We are we do have some we do have a 3PL inventory, but we we largely are dropship. So we're and we've never been affiliate. So no, we weren't affiliate to begin with. Let, let me sort of walk you back to the history of our commerce business because I think a lot of people just, you know, if you weren't on the site in the early days, you wouldn't wouldn't know this, but we launched in September of 2009 and in December we launched our shop. So, but our shop then was really just this kind of stake in the ground placeholder where we featured products that we liked. It was organized like a shop with different categories that you could, you could, um, uh, you know, click into. And it was, you know, a lot of the categories that we still have today, like, you know, pantry and, you know, tabletop and cookware. 
And we, we've featured a new, uh, like in our blog content, featured a new product each day, added it to the shop and then, you know, had a product detail page. But then if you went to, wanted to purchase it, we linked off to it, but we didn't, I just want to note, we did not do affiliate then for two reasons. One was the primary reason was that we didn't want to transact with our customers yet because we wanted to build trust. We wanted them to know that like, we are going to have more than just content on this, on this, with this company. And we want you to get comfortable. We also want you to trust our selection. And it's not just about us making money. It's about like, you know, us curating this, this very large and fragmented world of like pantry ingredients, cookware, tabletop, you know, home goods, um, doing a really good job of that, building your trust. And then, and then if we can prove that out, then we will start selling things. Secondly, though, it also was, we could have done affiliate, but it was pretty, it was a affiliate programs were much less sophisticated and common than they are now. So it would have been kind of tricky to do affiliate. Um, we did that for a couple of years. And then in 2012, we did a proof of concept test using a third party platform where we did transact with our, uh, our audience. And that we and, and and because we just didn't know what people would be open to actually buying, if anything at all, we tested everything from you know, pan, like ingredients to, um, you know, wooden cutting boards to to travel as well. We we actually um, curated a, a couple of, and sold a couple of trips to Italy, and one to Mexico, and um, everything sold really well, which surprised us but also delighted us because we felt like, okay, we put in the work. Um, people do trust us um, and they're willing to actually put their credit cards down. And that was when we raised a, our series a, I think was about $2.3 million. And we raised that money to build our own commerce platform. And we had, you know, we wanted to build our own proprietary platform, A, so we could own the data and the technology, but also because we knew that we were building a business that that there was no existing platform could support uh, and still doesn't. So, you know, for instance, like we couldn't move our company to Shopify if we wanted to, because we are a dropship business, which means that we are the merchant of record. When an order comes, we have we have buyers. Now they don't technically buy, they, I mean, they do some buys, but they don't do a lot of buying. They, they are mostly uh, finding amazing products, you know, we're, we're vetting them. Then they're developing, you know, a relationship with the vendor, um, you know, establishing whatever margin we're going to, we're going to have and, and what's amount of supply. And then, um, and then when it goes up on our site, if somebody comes and buys it, the transaction goes through on our site, we send the shipping label and packing slip to the vendor, they pack it and ship it. Um, but we, and, but, if there's any issue, it's our customer care team. So we are, we're kind of like a two thirds of the way to inventory without having to actually have, you know, warehouses. So I was going through my calendar before this uh, episode and I realized that meeting you was one of the last things I did before lockdown went into place. Oh, wow. Uh, so I think uh-huh. we met in February yeah. of, of 2020. Yeah. And when I was leaving, you handed me uh, two of your dish towels as a gift. Um, and I have not <laughs> hidden my uh, admiration for these t- dish towels uh, because they are literally the most absorbent things on the planet. Uh, 
But this this also was a big day in, in, in my relationship because it was the first time my girlfriend and I bonded over media companies since she's a big <laughs> Food 52 reader. So in 2018, you launched 5.2, which is your own line of products. How does that business work and what did you learn from launching your own physical product business? Yeah. <clears throat> we, you know, we've always wanted to create our own products and, but we didn't feel ready. We didn't feel like we understood yet, like why we should be creating products over just working with other great makers. And then, you know, we, we started thinking about how there are a lot of products, especially in the kitchen that, but really throughout the home that there's <laughs> consumers have no idea like why they're made of certain materials or like why certain shapes have become standard or there's just, there's such a um, disconnect between the consumer who's using these products and the manufacturer who's making them. And it, you never really have a sense that they're, they're responding to like actual consumer needs. They're just kind of producing, you know, pans as they maybe they should, you know, they, they, as they see, see fit for, um, you know, a home cook. And we felt like given our incredibly engaged community, that this could be a real opportunity for people to have input and weigh in on what they actually want, as opposed to, um, you know, what, what companies were producing. We also, I mean, we, you could say, well, you have a lot of sales data on like what people are buying. And yes, that is true. But just because people are buying something doesn't mean that it, it, you know, it's, it's their ideal version of something. Right. And we just knew from like what we, we, we learn from our community every day in lots of different ways. And we felt like, well, if we learn from them about cooking, we surely are going to learn from them if we ask them about products. So that was, that became the, the, the backbone of like, of our product line five, two was let's create a community, you know, co a, a product line that's co-created with our community. So <clears throat> we, we decided to start with a cutting board and, uh, we did that because we felt like it's such a foundational element. When you start any meal, you often start at your cutting board. Um, let's, and we set out just to create a cutting board, like your ideal cutting board. And we, we surveyed our audience and we did everything you're not supposed to do in surveys, which is we asked them, you know, very detailed, 11 very detailed questions and, uh, which is too many. And it was probably, and too detailed and, uh, more than 10,000 people responded or completed, fully completed the, 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 the questions. And the last one was an open-ended question that was just like, what have we missed? Tell us. And more than 5,000 people filled that out. And they gave us such good ideas that we ended up creating a very, a, a much different board than what we expected. It, we ended up creating a cutting board that was two-sided. On one side, it was a cutting board um, and it had this beveled edge that would make it easy to flip. And then on the other side, it was a carving board. And, you know, we, we've all seen carving boards and they're all pretty standard. But what our community pointed out, which is so true, uh, is that most carving boards have this trench that goes around the edge, uh, around the, um, the, the border, but it's often too shallow. So that if you actually do have something that where you need to like collect the juices, they end up spilling out. And there's also no, they don't, um, have a, uh, a pouring, pouring spout. So we, <laughs> it seems it's very simple, right? We, we created this board that was double-sided, had a deeper trench around the edge, um, and had a, had a pour spout on the corner. 
And we had added our own feature, which was a, a slot for your iPhone so that you could, you could tilt up your iPhone and have your recipe in front of you while you're on the cutting board side. So we just, from that point on, we just, we knew we were onto something because it was this kind of amazing moment of like, there are a million cutting boards on, on the market, but there isn't this one. And this one is really, truly responding to what uh, people want, you know, home cooks want. And, you know, if you think about it, it makes so much sense, right? People living in their, at home, in their kitchens, like they know what works for them. They know what price points they're comfortable with. They know what materials please them and they know what lasts and, and what features matter. And so it, it, you know, it just, um, uh, all sort of came together very neatly that this, this, this was the kind of product line that we should launch with. And, um, it's a, you know, it tends to be, um, pretty reasonably priced, um, very utility focused, um, a high uh, emphasis on sustainability, because again, we hear about that, about the importance of sustainability from our audience all the time. Um, so it, it, it just seemed like this kind of natural thing. We will, you know, we do, uh, hope and plan to, uh, launch other, uh, owned brands. Um, but this feels felt like the right one to, to start with. And what was the process for finding the right partners to actually manufacture these goods? Because, you know, mm-hmm. you were a journalist in your background, not a product designer. And <laughs> so how did, how did that whole research process take place once you knew what you wanted to make? So, well, we had, you know, we had all you know, th- this group of buyers on our team who were talking to manufacturers all the time about product, you know, other products that we were selling. And so, you know, one thing that I, that we learned early on was that commerce really is a very, uh, very much a relationships business. And, you know, if you build strong relationships, <laughs> they will enter, you know, like if you build a strong relationship with a, with a great manufacturer, they'll introduce you to other great manufacturers and they will do special, um, you know, runs of products for you and they will do exclusives for you and they will give you better margins over time. But you, you know, you have to be a great partner and, um, and being such a like community driven company and thinking of ourselves as partners to our community, it was a, it was really a natural for our team to build these kinds of you know, great personal relationships. And so when we decided to build our, to do our own line, you know, our, 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 you know, partners are either produced products for us or introduced us to manufacturers who could produce the kinds of products that we wanted. And that's still how we're producing that line. So let's pivot to the advertising business, which has recently gotten a bit of press because of the DMP you recently launched. But before we talk about that, I'm curious, why run advertising at all when you could instead be promoting your products? How do you prioritize that difference between running an ad versus promoting a product? So, I mean, we do, you know, I I think that we are, we're doing both um, pretty generously and, um, and hopefully seamlessly so that it doesn't feel like um, it, you know, an intrusive experience. I think that we really feel like when we work with brand partners, it's a, it's a real, it's a partnership with, you know, companies that we, we feel excited that we feel like our, our audience is going to exci- be excited to learn about and get to know, and that we can, you know, tell their stories and, um, and really do, you know, kind of inventive content, um, with them. And in fact, there are a number of, of partners who we've also created 
you know, products um, and, um, you know, and packages of products with. So I think that's, you know, it's something that, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we don't, we don't, there's no, like, there's no sort of internal formula for how we make that decision. I think that we, you know, we value both of those uh, revenue streams. And so um, we feel, and we feel like there's plenty of room for both um, given that, you know, our brand is on, you know, yes, there's, uh, you know, we have, there's our site, but there's also like many social platforms where we, where we live. Um, when post COVID we'll get back to doing events, you know, there, and, um, and we will be moving into retail and, you know, I think there's just, there's a lot of places for us to be, um, you know, uh, highlighting a brand partner, um, uh, as well as our own products. And then leaning into the DMP launch just a little bit. I obviously spend a lot of time writing about first party data, why do you think Food 52 in particular is primed to be a good partner with advertisers, especially as we move into a post-Kirky world? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that the way people interact with our brand and the fact that it's not just a singular media consumption experience that, you know, p- you know, people are, are attending events or they're, you know, they may take a class or they may, um, you know, buy something, there's, there's a lot of different, um, facets of, of, of what people want that we are able to understand in a way that I think other media brands aren't. And I think that's really valuable for brand partners who are, you know, ideally trying to reach the right people who are going to be interested in their products. So you mentioned this, but before COVID you were planning to launch a bricks and mortar store. Obviously, that probably got a little delayed with everything going on. But can you talk about why you were going to do that? There are a number of reasons. A primary one is that food, um, you know, our our mission, if you just look at our mission, which is, um, you know, to help people enjoy life's most important pleasures, which are food and home and connection to others. And, you know, that connection to others is, is a really important component. And we feel like we do, you know, um, a really good job with it on online, but we also feel like food and is inherently social and it's something that people do want to gather around. And, you know, which is why pre COVID, you know, we did, we did a bunch of pop-ups, we did a lot of events. Um, and it was a way that, you know, we could connect, uh, with our, our audience, but also connect them with each other and, um, and connect them to other, you know, writers and, um, and cooks and people that they admire. And we feel like, um, having a an experiential um, retail space is a is a huge opportunity to really connect people, have it a place that where people can learn, they can discover, they can create, they can become, you know, they can participate in our content creation, um, and they can, you know, and they can shop and learn about our products. And so, to you know, we feel like. Um, it's a real opportunity to just kind of fi- fire on all cylinders with like what, you know, what we do as a brand, um, in, in person. And actually, since you've been to our office <laughs> pre COVID, I think, you know, I just wanted to point out that like a big inspiration for us actually is our office because, um, when you, when you can't, and you know this, but I will, for your listeners, uh, when you came to our office, the elevator doors were, would open and you were instantly 
in our photo studio and test kitchen. Um, and that was sort of by accident, just based on the space that we had, but what we learned from it was that, you know, you, you get off the elevator and, you know, there might be, you know, food being styled, there was food being cooked, you could smell things, you could, there were carts of products being, you know, wheeled by and sets being made. And, um, and people really responded to that. They say, they often said, you know, I feel like I just walked into your website and, or that I walked into a home that didn't necessarily, necessarily feel like an office. And I think that's the feeling that we, we want to have in any kind of retail experience. We feel like, um, that's a, that's a, a, a important connection and a, you know, feeling, I think the internet can feel impersonal, right? And so being able to have an offline experience that feels extremely personal, um, uh, and also feels genuine to the, the, the digital experience, um, I think is, is a huge opportunity and I'm super excited to create. So, yeah, I do recall when I came into the office, uh, they were photographing a chocolate cake and I very vividly remember that because it looked fantastic. <laughs> um, but obviously now with COVID, you can't be in the office mm-hmm. or perhaps you're very limited in the office. How has your content development process evolved since going into lockdown? It has, uh, it has been some surprisingly invigorating this, like, you know, initially, I think all of us felt a little paralyzed because, you know, we were so, we were this well-oiled machine of like creating a lot of content, a lot of photography in our office. And then suddenly, um, being deprived of that, um, and then having to sort of figure out entirely new ways, it felt scary initially, but I think as anyone has experienced, like when you, when you have to, you know, get creative and I think it actually really energized our team because we realized that, um, you know, instead of having kind of one, you know, main test kitchen and photo studio, like our, we really suddenly scaled up to having a lot of test kitchens and studios based on the size of our team, our creative team, because they were all at home in their kitchens. And while not everything was as styled and sort of, you know, sort of perfectly planned as, um, you know, we, we had done traditionally in the office, there were, I, you know, I think also for this particular moment, I think that actually really mattered. I think people really valued that. I think our audience really liked the fact that they were getting to see our kitchens. They were getting to see the imperfections. It made them feel comforted and like they were doing okay because they could see that like even we as professionals, not everything was right. Like we, we, we were also trying to figure out like what to cook, what we, ingredients we could get our hands on and that, um, and that cooking became, you know, was not just our jobs, but it was also the source of comfort for us. And so, um, I think it became this really powerful moment where we could see that a, it validated the importance of what we were doing. Right. You know, I think up until COVID, obviously everyone on our team had, uh, you know, deep, you know, felt like what we were doing was deeply important and that we had a real, really meaningful mission. But at the same time, food was, is, you know, also a kind of topic of leisure, right. And, uh, maybe a sort of softer news topic. Um, and I think that when COVID hit and we all saw, you know, really quickly, like how important it was to feel a safe at home, um, have a place that you at ho- home that you feel comfortable in and also to be able to feed yourself and your family and comfort yourselves with food. Um, 
that 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 really kind of underlined the the more serious like importance of what of what we're building and what we provide for people. And so um, I think that um, what we've come away with, and you know, we're not we we have gone back to our photo studio um, a bit, but but we're still creating content at home, and I think that we'll move forward. Um, with this more of a hybrid, you know, where, cause we, we want to bring that real home experience to people. And, um, you know, I think as a content company, you know, there things like photographing products for our shop, it's really helpful to be able to do that in a studio. And I don't think that has to be done in, in a real, you know, in a, in a home. Um, but, um, I think that, you know, just going forward, we will think more kind of openly and broadly about how we create content. And I think people now on our team feel like very empowered. They see that like how with just a little, like with just your phone um, and a few ingredients, you you can create great content and you can really connect with people. So since the pandemic started, I've learned quite a bit about the food ecosystem since my girlfriend became a food photographer. How does the food community and influencers on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and the various other social platforms play into your strategies for growth? So, I I mean, I think that we think of any of these new platforms um, or existing platforms as just an opportunity to, you know, get like to meet more people and for more people to learn about what we're doing and for us to learn from them, like what they want. Right. And I think, you you know, you see that, I think TikTok is a great example because, you know, what we do on Instagram is not what we do on, on TikTok because the TikTok audience is looking for something, a different experience. Right. And so making sure that we're not, you know, that we're responding to each platform and like, and really embracing the culture of it and, um, and providing value as opposed to just being on there for the sake of being on there. Um, I think, you know, that's, and, and we see like when, when we have figured that out, that's when we start seeing traction and success. And so we've spent, you know, the past couple of months really studying up, experimenting a lot on TikTok, you know, doing some, you know, some wacky things and then things that, and, you know, things that we thought were sure bets that didn't work necessarily. And, and I think that now we've hit a stride where we, we feel like we have a following that um, is really engaged with us, but we're also feel like, like we're producing content that is additive um, and that, um, you know, that, that people are responding to. So I, you know, it's, um, I, it, it's just another doorway for us to, um, you know, get in front of people and uh, let them know who we are and how, we, you know, how we can interact. So as you're thinking about Food 52 over the next few years, where do you see the business headed? So I, I think there are a number of things that um, you'll see and that I'm really excited for us to um, really execute on is one of the things that we started last year um, was what we call our resident program. And we th- there were sort of a couple of goals, um, sort of two primary goals. One was we wanted to have uh, you know, a broader more, uh, set of more diverse voices um, producing content for us. And we also wanted to... Um, uh, go deeper on specific topics. So like, cause we had to date been fairly general, like, yes, we had done, you know, co- we had covered vegan cooking and things like that, but we didn't really have, um, a lot of depth on specific topics within, you know, food and home. Um, and we felt like this is a real opportunity if we could work with, 
um, what we're, what we deem, what, you know, what we, I'm sorry, we term residents. Um, and those are people who, you know, are really great content creators, um, with varying degrees of followings who we feel like we could be a great support system for. And when I say support system, I mean everything from like production capabilities, whether it means, whether that's like helping them produce the kinds of videos that they want to do, you know, being their editing, uh, editing resource, um, uh, doing photography for, for, you know, their, their recipes, helping them produce a podcast, um, you know, helping them, uh, create products. We feel like we can be that sort of, um, uh, uh, production and, and creative support system, but then we also can help them grow, you know, through our, our reach and platform following, um, help them reach a larger audience and help them build a following. And likewise, we, you know, ideally we can get in front of a new audience of, you know, their followers who maybe didn't know about Food 52. So we felt like if we could create a program that really was, um, you know, uh, financially appealing to residents, but also um, appealing from a uh, production that allowed them to do the creative work that they love to do and that they're great at, but they might not have all the resources for that it could really be, um, a, you know, a winning partnership. And we have seen, you know, great progress. I feel like um, that's something that we're just going to continue growing across all the topics that we cover. So we're going deeper on home. We're getting in, you know, going deeper on, you know, beverages and um, spirits and drinks um, and wine and beer. And uh, soon we'll be getting into travel and more into uh, topics like wellness. So I think that you'll see an expansion and more like a, a sort of broader and deeper content. Um, we will be continue, um, you know, uh, increasing, like, you know, we've, we've had, uh, the growth of our following, um, on YouTube has been, uh, 400% year over year. And, um, so, you know, we're going to lean further into to YouTube. Um, I think there's just, a, there's a lot of areas of the business where we had a, you know, kind of a toehold. <laughs> now we want to have a stronger foothold on, on the content that we're, we're, producing for them. Um, I think that you'll see again, more owned brands in our commerce business. We'll have retail. Um, you know, I think, I just think that we'll be in more places and serving people in this, uh, more comprehensive way that, you know, we had set out to, to do from the beginning. And it's just something that takes time. I want to end with the same two questions. I ask every operator that comes on the show. Okay. First, what is a mistake that you made in your career and what did you learn from it? I think a mistake I made was I think, and this is going to sound odd because I also like, I loved my years at the New York times. Uh, and I love the New York times. I'm, you know, like super a time, super fan, but I do think I stayed too long. And I think that kind of, um, cor like corroded or sorry, excuse me, eroded my, um, my confidence in my gut <laughs> And it just took me a little while to, sh once I left, to sort of shake that off um, and realize that I, I, I just am entrepreneurial by nature and, and don't belong in a larger corporation like the New York Times. And um, so I think that that kind of maybe held me back for a couple of years, but um, I, I'm trying to make up for it. And my second question is, if you could offer prospective or current media operators some advice, what would it be? Well, I have, 
<laughs> naturally, I have a strong bias towards the kind, you know, the kind of media company that we are in that we have always been organic, you know, growth, which means that you're not going to like, we, we were never going to attract the kind of venture capitalists who go for, you know, um, some that the kind of like hot new concept, you know, we, we were, <laughs> we, we were always going to be the, the sort of the turtle in the turtle and hair race. And, um, uh, and I think that like, it, it takes a lot of grit and patience and, but a lot of grit. <laughs> and, um, and I think that, you know, if you want to build a really great media company that is additive to the world, like it's just, it's going to take time. Um, and it's going to take a lot of effort and you're going to have to do it without a lot of funding. And I think it's worth it, you know, and I, I think that, um, it's, it's worth that effort, um, because it's easy to get kind of lured into like, what can we do to, for, to like, um, kind of, um, push for fast growth. And I just think that like brands that really connect with people just aren't born overnight. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.